Welcome to the War from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. We continue our D-Day episodes with a look at Orson Welles' Radio Almanac for June 7th of 1944. This program cast aside the typical variety show format that we heard earlier in this series for a dramatized look at how people at home were reacting to the war and to the news of the invasion. So here now is Radio Almanac. The following program will be interrupted to bring you any late news developments. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Instead of our regular program at this time, the makers of Mobile Gas and Mobile Oil and the Mercury Theater bring you a special broadcast. My dearest son... I guess June 6th and 7th will be always remembered in history. I know that none of us will ever forget those days, even we who live at home. Your father will have more to remember about these two days and more to tell you. I don't know where he is now as I write this. Somewhere in the north of France it must be. But when he comes back, and oh, my dear little son, I pray to God he will come back. When he comes back, I know he'll have a better story to tell than this. Anyway, here's our side of it, here on the home front. That's what the papers call it, the home front. Sometimes I... I feel kind of ashamed of that expression. It really isn't much of a front. We do have trouble getting houses, and there isn't much room on the streetcars, and... Sometimes the steak is a little tough, but there aren't any of us living on K rations, and altogether the war is pretty easy to fight here in sunny California. We work hard, and don't let anybody tell you we've let down because we haven't, and we won't. And our work is important. But nobody out here sleeps in a bomb shelter. And for the last two days, everybody's started to realize that again. And I I think that's part of the reason why the whole city's been so quiet ever since Monday night. You know, even the people out here who don't have anybody to worry about, even those people are telling themselves again how lucky they are. And sometimes luck can be sort of embarrassing. We first heard the news at 12.35 a.m. I work on the P-38 center section assembly over at Lockheed, and I I was having trouble fixing the air hose. I just hope I can get Josie, that's all. She's the only one who knows how to do my hair. Hand me that, will you, please? Why don't you go where I go, Lillian? Well, I hate to change. I tell you what. We'll meet for lunch tomorrow, and I'll take you. I used to have a lot of trouble. They always left it too flat at the sides. It made my face look too Attention. Hard. Attention, everybody. We have just heard the following news on the radio. Under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces, supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. That's funny. I've been waiting for this, and I don't know. What do you mean? I always thought it was going to be different. I thought maybe everybody would cheer. 
It's too early to cheer. Here is the text of the order of the day from General Dwight D. Eisenhower announcing invasion of Europe. You are about to embark upon a great crusade. The eyes of the world are upon you, and the hopes and prayers of all liberty-loving peoples go with you. You go with superior arms, security from the air, and incontestable right on your side. Let us all observe a minute's silence for prayer. My shift was over then. Lil and I walked to the parking lot together, neither one of us talking. Nobody around was talking much. I said goodnight to Lil. I, I wanted to get to a radio, and I don't have one in my little 39 Chevy. So I stopped off at Joe Fernandez. That's a greasy spoon not far away from Lockheed. A lot of the kids hang out there. Only I had forgotten Mr. Fernandez doesn't have a radio. A radio? Yes, I want to hear the news. Why don't you keep one of them? Who's going to play my joke box? Mr. Fernandez, I... You want to hear the news? I want to come to Rome yesterday. Good, huh? Hold up a third Mr. Fernandez, haven't you heard? The invasion started. Oh, sure, I know. Yes, yes, the invasion. They just announced it. All the time to make announcement yesterday. Invasion. The day before the telegraph. Sure, it's a fake. The day before telegraph goes, you make a mistake, eh? Sure, that's a mistake. About an hour ago, some fella come in here. He said the German. He sent over news. That's a fake, too. Yeah, Gonna be lots of that. You watch. They don't go over till September. September, you're crazy. But, Joe, I'm we like heard it at the plant. They made an announcement on the loudspeaker. Did you hear that, Paul? Yeah. Is that right, Mike? Yes, it came over the loudspeaker at the plant. What was that? You oh, think? Oh. Yes. Well, I got a radio in my car. Let's go out and listen. Okay, she's got a radio in my car. I don't know. All I heard was that Allied troops landed on the northern coast of France. Hey, mister, what about the eggs you ordered? Your eggs, mister. You know, the Hold it. We'll be back. I still think it's a fake. Well, come on, let's go find out. I hope nobody steals their drink. <laughs> oh, Wally, how you carry on. Well, here it is. We'll get it in a minute. And so, for headaches caused by hyperacidity... Oh, hey, what's going on? Listen to the radio. It's about the invasion. Effective civil administration of France... I bet you sound to you, All presidents must continue in their present duties... unless otherwise instructed. Henry! It's General Eisenhower. What? It's General Eisenhower. They should be. As France is liberated from her oppressors, you yourselves, your representatives, and the government under which you wish to live. In the course of this campaign, the final defeat of the enemy may sustain further loss and damage. Tragic though they may be, they are part of the price of victory. I assure you that it's I invasion, all right. shall do all in my power to mitigate your hardship. I know that I can count on your steadfastness now. The heroic deeds of Frenchmen who have He's continued their struggle against their Nazi and their fishy satellites. All right, all right, turn that thing down, will you please? Wake up the whole neighborhood. Yeah, but officer, you heard me. You got it on too loud. Well, officer, it's the invasion. What? This the invasion. Is they can't see it. This is the invasion. Quiet. I don't want to hear this. Great battles lie ahead. I call upon all who love freedom to stand with it. Keep your faith strong. Our arms are resolute. Together, we shall achieve victory. We descend you now to New York. 
This is Bob Trout in the Columbia oh, Navy. Oh, you have just heard General Eisenhower. Oh, Mister, what about the eggs? Did they get nice clothes? What about the eggs? While we're waiting for more bulletins, which are coming in now, here's an item from a South England embarkation port. An officer explaining to a private who asked where he was going said, "You're going to have a nice holiday by the sea. You won't have any KP or fatigue details or training or anything. Just relax." <laughs> Some relaxer. We stood there in the middle of the street. The whole crowd of us standing around the car, all of us listening. After a while, I, I think a lot of us felt like getting home. I know I did. So then, when the King of Norway went on the air and started speaking Norwegian, I went back over to my car and drove as fast as I could go to the apartment. Oh, it looks so strange. The apartment building, I mean. Everybody's lights were on all over the place. Even old Mrs. Borgeson, who was never up after eight. Her little dog was barking, and Levinson's little baby was crying. And of course, everybody was playing their radios. Hello, dear. You heard the news? Good evening, Miss Borgeson. Yes, yes, I've been listening. It's wonderful, isn't it? Just wonderful. You heard about it? What's that, Mr. Levinson? Airborne troops, they landed there. Thousands, he said, already in parachutes. Mr. Levinson, I keep telling you, he said airborne. That's something different than paratroopers. Look like I'm telling you, airborne is paratroopers, paratroopers is airborne. It's all the same to me. What do you think they got? Maybe jet propulsion. <laughs> Look what we got now around here, Mr. Major George Fielding Elliott already. Excuse me, what? What's he saying now? Uh, French. French. Uh, yeah. Uh, before that, they had on the fellow from Holland. But by me, the main news is the paratroopers. This looks to me very strategic. Quentin Reynolds, we got. So, Mr. Big Mouth, now you got up the baby already. The baby is up, so leave him be up. A night like this is going to hurt him. Besides, we can't ask everybody if you turn down their radio, so the baby is up. Right. Like I tell you, Mr. Levinson, if airborne troops and paratroopers were all the same, a man wouldn't talk about both of them. Wait a minute. Who should know better? Ask Helen. Her husband is a paratrooper. Max, Shasha. What's this Shasha business? So what did I say? The lady's husband is a paratrooper? So Max. I would be... Oh. Excuse me. Excuse me. I, I didn't think. Oh, that's all right, Mr. Levinson. the weather, and then, well, there was a tenseness in the air that nobody talked about. In the early evening, Major Richardson came into the enclosure. He stood for a moment watching the men in the small recreation area, and then he called them into the briefing room, and the pilots, co-pilots, navigators, and radio men clustered around the Major in the briefing room. There was a large-scale map on the wall showing the course to be followed. Men, I think this is it. All I want to know now is, 
Is there anyone who doesn't know exactly what to do? <coughs> okay. Get your stuff and report to the operations room immediately. I'm going down to the colonel to get the weather report. You, uh... You all want to get back, don't you? You can say that again, sir. Then, damn it, get in there and fight. The crews piled into their trucks to go first the operations office and then to the line where their planes were drawn up ready to go. As they moved toward the airport, the vast, long columns of airborne troops appeared, trudging slowly under their full loads of battle equipment. General Eisenhower visited them during the afternoon, quietly passing among the men and chatting with them, asking their names about their homes and their jobs. Outside the door of each C-47, the soldiers assembled, checked their equipment, ground crews and combat crews gave the planes a final tuning up. Heavily laden transport planes began taxiing along in the long procession toward the runway. The paratroopers adjusted their packs on their May West and chutes and climbed into the planes. Each was so heavily loaded that he had to be pushed from behind and pulled from above to get up to the steps going into the plane. As the men settled in their bucket seats on the plane I was to fly in, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Cole, a commanding officer aboard, came up to them. There's a, a doc coming over to give you some pills. That'll keep you from getting airsick. Sure. Make yourselves as comfortable as you can. Uh, better try to sleep a little. Thank you, sir. Well, I know one thing. My parachute's okay. My mother checked it. <laughs> His mother checked it. No kidding. She works in the Pioneer Parachute Company in our town. And her job's given the once-over to all the shoots that come out of there. Well, I'm okay. Almost before we knew it, we were trundling past the operation buildings in the control tower. And then, foot by foot, almost inch by inch, we began to rise above the fields and trees of southern England. All about us and below us was such a glimmering fabric of light as I had not seen in the eight months I had been in blackout England. Four times we circled the field, its runways, perimeter, outlined its sparkling white lights. Through the sky, formation lights of the plane strung almost to the limit of vision. Look, for all the world like holiday decorations. As the long procession straightened out and its pre-established course, signal lights blinked and navigators checked their speed and direction of the pilots began their continuous plotting of position. We were right on course and one minute early. I went back to see how the paratroopers were riding. More than half of them had taken the colonel's advice and were dozing with their heads back against the wall and their feet stretched out in front of them. The rear door was open and down below I saw more signal lights blink and then we crossed the coast of England and pushed out over the channel. The sea was calm and soon the moon brightened the water made the ripples below us twinkle. Hey, Tiny, tell the colonel it's 30 minutes till jump time. Yeah. I looked straight ahead and I caught my first glimpse of the coast of France. Navigation had been perfect. We could see the beach ahead precisely at the point we'd studied it on the maps and aerial photographs. The moon was almost full. And as our strong ship crossed above the breakers into the air of France, we plunged into a bank of cloud or fog and lost sight of the plains around us. In a matter of two or three minutes, we were flying formation on instruments. Then we emerged into clear moonlight. The small fields looked peaceful with their orderly hedgerows. Now the paratroopers were on their feet, each adjusting his pack, snapping his ripcord over the static line. That's a cable which ran along the center of the cabin ceiling so that each chute would open automatically as each paratrooper jumped through the door. Are you all set? 
Everybody get everything? Here, get this thing hooked for me, and let's get going. That was Colonel Cole taking his place with his men. The jump lights, a small bank of signal lamps were gleaming beside the door. They blinked, and then, before I could get ready to watch, the paratroopers started jumping. I wanted to know how long it would take the 18 men to jump, and I, I tried to count. 101, 102, 103, yeah, to the estimate of number of seconds, you know. It may have been 11 or 12, but no more, and then our, our passengers were gone, all except one. They, they jumped so swiftly, one had been pushed against the door frame and was thrown back into the cabin so violently that he was dazed. The men behind him had shoved him aside and gone on. After a moment, he climbed his feet, started for the door. Staff Sergeant Eberle stopped him. I'm okay, Tony. Let me go. Ah, easy, soldier. Past the drop zone. I don't care. I'll find him. I'll get back. It's too late. You gotta let me, Tiny. The guys will think I'm yellow. Please, Tiny. I'm all right, I tell you. Relax, soldier. Nobody's gonna think you're yellow. You can't jump now. We'll be over the channel in a minute. Sit down and take it easy. Ah, you'll get another chance. I went back to the front of the ship and looked out the glass dome. Tiny streams of tracer bullets were curling upward from the ground behind us. One of the pilots in our squadron had unwittingly left all of his formation lights on. The tracers came close to his wingtips, but we saw nothing that looked like heavy hack-hack, except in the far distance. We'd been over France only 11 minutes. Behind us, we could still see an occasional flare, and below a few more ships, but we couldn't tell what they were. The Battle of Europe had begun. And our squadron had delivered the first Allied soldiers to their scene of action. This is Bright Bryant in London, returning you now to New York. Yes? Come in. Excuse me. I got here a little soup. I thought maybe you was hungry, huh? Oh, thank you, Mrs. Levinson. You've been listening? Yeah. We've been listening. Who hasn't? Uh, you know that one fellow, something went wrong, who didn't jump? You shouldn't worry too much. Maybe that fellow, he could be your husband, that? Could be. Oh, it wasn't his fault. He wanted to jump. I hope it wasn't my Ned. You hope it wasn't? Maybe I shouldn't say that. I know Ned wouldn't want that to be him. He'd want to get there first. That's why he's a paratrooper. Whoever it was, he wanted to jump. It wasn't his fault. He'll, he'll go the next time. Let's see what they're saying. If you don't know where the next blow may fall, prepare yourself for all eventualities. Today, tomorrow, or at any time. Before we knew it, it was daylight. Mrs. Levinson and Miss Jameson made coffee for us all and fixed a little breakfast. Come on, honey. Have a little toast at least. Do you good. <laughs> Thanks. No, but I, I will have some more coffee. Eat something, darling. Look how you look. Yeah, I'm going to take a shower. I've got to get to work pretty soon. Look, uh, already they're ten miles in. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, Mr. Harmon. Uh, already they're ten miles in. Wait and see, Mama. It's going to be quicker than we thought. Don't be so sure. They got into Italy all right. But after that, look how long it took. It's ain't easy. You never can tell what'll happen. One little thing goes wrong. Look at Dieppe. But 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 that was a different thing. That, that was two years ago. From, from this, we learned a lesson. 
Yeah. The way it turns out, the, the fellows that died there wasn't wasted. I like what the king said. He said the spirit of the people burned up like a bright flame. And he said now is the time when we don't fight to keep the Nazis away, but to win the war. He said everybody should pray. Keep on praying. Yeah. Yeah, that's what he said. And the queen said so too. Of course, they said it better. I tried to get a little sleep, and then about one o'clock, I went over to Lillian's, and we sat by her radio for a while. She phoned the beauty parlor and canceled our appointments. And then we got to talking and decided to go and sign up for nurse's aid. You can do that on a part-time basis. And then we went to work. Attention, everybody. Attention, please. During this last shift, the president made a special broadcast. For the benefit of all of you who've been working and couldn't hear it, we're now going to read you his message. My fellow Americans, in this poignant hour, I ask you to join me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day has set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. Help us to conquer the apostles of greed and racial arrogances. Lead us to the saving of our country and with our sister nations into a world unity that will spell a sure peace. A peace invulnerable to the schemings of unworthy men and a peace that will let all men live in freedom, reaping the just rewards of their honest toil. Thy will be done. Almighty God, amen. Lillian slept in my apartment Tuesday night. Of course, we didn't really sleep. We listened and read and read and listened. We heard today from our headquarters that we're making progress on the whole front. We heard all kinds of things. Rumors and facts and more rumors. Some things were important and some weren't, but... I don't know. Somehow these last few days everything seems important. One little story made a big impression on me for some reason. It was about a Brooklyn G.I. Joe in Rome. Papers didn't give his name. He got up on the balcony where Mussolini used to stand. We've all seen it in the newsreels. And then he made a speech like Mussolini used to make. <laughs> oh, it must have been funny. 
That Brooklyn boy making faces and shouting double talk and the crowd below him loving it. <laughs> I got the idea. They'd heard double talk from that balcony before. Only now, this time they could laugh at it. Out loud. And speaking of double talk, the first official Japanese statement about the invasion was pretty funny, too. In its own peculiar Japanese way. The anti-Axis landing operations on the European continent must be highly welcome to the Germans. We can well imagine the jubilation in the German high command on the receipt of the news of the invasion. Thank you. And then this afternoon we heard from Switzerland that a large Allied fleet was seen off the French-Italian coast. <sighs> that about takes it up to now. I'm going to put this letter away for you to read later on. Maybe your father will join in reading it when he comes back. And when you're old enough, my dearest little Robert, I think you'll like to know about these last two days. I know I, I haven't had anything special to say. I've been a long way off from where things have been happening. I've just been... One of the millions and millions waiting at home and listening to the radio and reading all the papers. That's all. But I've tried to show you what it was like here and what we felt like and what we thought about. When you're old enough, little Robert, I hope you'll read very carefully the words of General Eisenhower. They'll probably teach them to you in school. But I'm putting them down here in this letter anyway. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving peoples everywhere march with you. You'll bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemies well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. You'll fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeat in open battle. Man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage devotion to duty, and skill in battle will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us beseech of Almighty God his blessing upon this great and noble undertaking.
That was his order of the day, General Eisenhower. They say it went to every man who had a part in the invasion. I guess maybe I shouldn't use that word. The president wants us to call it the liberation. I'm sure that's the way your father thinks of it. And now, my little Robert, this is the end of the first letter anybody ever wrote to you. It has to be ended now because your mother has a lot of work to do. A whole lot of planes to help build. And she hasn't got much more time for work. And even if by any chance your name shouldn't be Robert, if it should turn out to be Dorothy, I know you'll want to hear about these last two days. June 6th and 7th, 1944. Your loving mother... Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard Agnes Moorhead and the Mercury Theater in a special broadcast brought to you by the makers of mobile gas and mobile oil instead of our regular Wednesday night program. Please join us again next week. Till then, I remain, as always, obediently yours. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. If you uh, have a comment, email me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. I welcome your story or that of loved ones who served during World War II. Ken Curlin provides our opening theme music, kencurlin.com. I am your host, Adam Graham. This uh, series is provided as a service of the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio, greatdetectives.net.